0: First, I want to apologize to producer Lindsay Gorey because I forgot to turn on the heat yesterday night. And when we got in here today, it was a balmy 58 degrees, and it's very, very cold outside with the wind. So, my apologies to you, Lindsay. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And when it comes to crime, right there at the top of the list if not near the top is you know when it comes to a list of most heinous crimes is homicide as in murder so how would you feel about your safety and security if you're if the people who are supposed to protect and serve you are members of violent gangs linked to nearly two dozen murders one of these practitioners of law enforcement specifically targeted black people viewing all of them as gang members and saw section 8 housing vouchers as evidence of likely criminality. I don't know about you, but if I found all of that out, I would move, which is exactly what it seems deputies inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department want black people who recently fled the violence of places like South Central, want them to do. White supremacy, it appears, is being enforced by Los Angeles County law enforcement, as if white supremacy is the law. But as we have recently learned from leaked audio tapes of the Los Angeles City Council. It appears that institutional and structural racism doesn't stop at the county sheriff's station. It actually goes to the highest levels of city political leadership as well. Our next guest, returning to This Is Hell, is award-winning reporter Cerise Castle, the author of the ongoing 15-part, or not going any longer, but it is on her podcast. 15-part investigation, a tradition of violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears in a printed form at knock-la.com. Tradition of Violence is also now a podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Cerise is an International Women's Media Foundation Courage Awardee. She is a multimedia journalist specializing in arts and culture, civil rights, crime, and human interest stories. Cerise has produced and hosted segments for the Emmy Award-winning nightly news program, Vice News Tonight. This is Cerise's second appearance on This Is Hell. We were very fortunate to have her on the show back in April of last year to discuss her investigation. That interview was selected by our listeners as one of their favorites of 2021, and we replayed it during our end-of-year Best of 2021 show. You can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Castle, C-A-S-T-L-E. Follow Cerise on Twitter, at Castle. Find out more about Cerise at CeriseCastle.me. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new by you? Are you freezing over there?
1: I'm okay, Chuck. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, so I am used to always being cold, and I... Was just working all weekend, um, cause the markets are still going on. Um, some of them are still starting at seven a.m., even though that's like sunrise and it's thirty degrees outside.
0: <laughs> so wait, I got two questions for you. If you're from uh, Phoenix, two questions. First, if you're from Phoenix all the time or from your whole life, why do you why do you feel cold while you're in Phoenix? It's supposed to be a place that's hot. No,
1: I mean while I'm here. Oh, but I see. I, I will say that when it's cold there. It's very dry, and so it feels really cold.
0: Oh, okay. You know? And the markets you're at, you're not downtown at the stock uh, market. You are at a farmers market, correct? The exact opposite yes. of a stock market.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, although there is a farmers market right outside of like the city court downtown at Daly Plaza.
0: But that's for fancy people. You're not working <laughs> that's there. That's for people
1: who are trapped downtown but <laughs> still need to eat. Um, <laughs> but uh, I worked that. I worked down there last. Winter, the Chris Kringle Market, whatever it's yeah, called. I don't market. even know, yeah, and yeah. I work there. But, uh, yeah, no, it's cold. And I work in Lincoln Park, um, which can get really gusty sometimes. Yeah, cause you're
0: right by the lake.
1: Uh-huh, and Logan Square, and uh, Andersonville is over this week. so.
0: Well, uh, where can people still see you this week if they want to drop by and uh, visit you at the farmer's market?
1: Well, the Logan Square market goes until the day before Halloween, and then Green City, I hear rumors that it goes through the mid-November, and I don't understand. I don't know if I'm going to make it that long. (laughs) If they don't change the start time to an hour later, I might... Lose my like, I'm. I just can't do customer service that early when it's that cold. (laughs) It could get bad.
0: (laughs) Also, listeners, if you hear some sort of weird drilling, grinding, construction noise, uh, they are right now in the midst of chopping up the beer garden out back. So if you hear any ancillary noise just ignore it what's new by me is I made a big executive decision about the upcoming schedule for the show I answered the question trick or treat when it comes to Halloween week and I came up with trick and treat that is the trick being we will not be doing new live shows during the week starting Monday October 31st but the treat is our, our producers, uh, Sebastian Vooper, Dan Hill, Lindsey Gorey, will be sitting in for me, and they will be playing hand-picked classic interviews from our vast archive. While I will be working on, among other things... Our vast archive with The website needs all sorts of updating to be done So you can find out our most recent You can find all of our most interview uh, recent interviews online Right now for free at thisishell.com And a whole bunch of other stuff needs to be done Including making a list of everything that needs to be done We will then be back with a full set of new live shows Beginning the following week no- Monday, November 7th Which we will be airing every Monday through Wednesday Live at thisishell.com Podcast shortly after At thisishell.com Up until the winter solstice Which is Wednesday, December 21st That evening during This Is Hell office hours Our regular weekly Wednesday meet and greet That's really a drink and think Which takes place in the bar downstairs From where I'm sitting right now Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue In Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood We will be celebrating our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. And as Halloween is approaching, I'll give you more far too premature details about our holiday office party a little bit later on today's show. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from hell is... Considering all of the crises we are experiencing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most?
0: Lindsay, I will be sharing with us more of your answers to this week's question from Hell in a moment. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The T-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported this is hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So, thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, which more and more people are doing. And you can email Chuck at This Is Hell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show. Following Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff unveils the super truth about angels speaking through deli meats. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. We got an email from Martin F. in Chicago, who writes to us every so often. Martin writes, Hi Chuck. I subscribe to a leftist group on Facebook, and one of the administrators of this page recently posted this article, which shows that the U.S. influenced the Soviet Union into invading Afghanistan in 1980 by supporting the Taliban's resistance to the country's pro-Russian government. I had no idea this happened. I had long believed that the U.S. was reacting to events rather than dictating them. Did you know about this? Have any of your previous guests talked about this history? I'm genuinely curious to know. But even more than that, if you read the article, what strikes me the most is how callously indifferent or oblivious Zbigniew Brzezinski is to the consequences of what we did, i.e. by supporting the Taliban, we basically signed the death warrants of 3,000 people on 9-11. Just thought I'd pass this along in case you didn't know about it. All the best, Martin F. in Chicago. So the article that Martin links to is from Monthly Review and titled Revelations of Carter's Former Advisor, Yes, the CIA Entered Afghanistan Before the Russians. It was originally posted way back in the year 2000, but Monthly Review reposted it in August of last year, 2021, and it's by a past guest on our show, David Gibbs, who is a history historian who works out of the University of Arizona. In it, former national security advisor during the Carter administration, Zbigniew Brzezinski, is asked when the Soviets justified their intervention in Afghanistan by asserting that they intended to fight against secret U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. Nobody believed them. However, there was an element of truth to this. You don't regret any of this today? Brzezinski replies Regret what? That secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Carter, essentially, we now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its own Vietnam War. Indeed, for almost 10 years, Moscow had to carry on a war that was unsustainable for the regime, a conflict that brought about the demoralization and finally the breakup of the Soviet Empire. And by the way, if you want to see what happened in the breakup to the Soviet Empire, make sure you check out the new Adam Curtis documentary. The interviewer follows up by asking, and neither do you regret having supported Islamic fundamentalism, which has given arms and advice to future terrorists. Brzezinski responds, what is more important in world history, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet Empire? Some agitated Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? The interviewer then asks, some agitated Muslims? But it has been said and repeated Islamic fundamentalism represents a world menace today. To which Brzezinski states, nonsense. It is said that the West has a global policy in regard to Islam. That is stupid. There isn't a global Islam. Look at Islam in a national manner without demagoguery or emotionalism. It is the leading religion of the world with one and a half billion followers. But what is there in common between among fundamentalist Saudi Arabia, moderate Morocco, militant or militarist Pakistan, pro-Western Egypt or secularist Central Asia? Nothing more than what unites the Christian countries. So Martin by the conversation by that conversation I would say yes the US knowingly and purposely provoked the Soviets into war in Afghanistan in the hopes that the Soviet Union would also experience a Vietnam war without any concern for the people who would die from such a war in Afghanistan. Just like we didn't have a concern for the Vietnamese, it appears that we didn't have any concern for the Afghans either, which in turn brought about the rise of the Mujahideen with the help of U.S. intelligence and arms, which eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet-backed government, and the rise of the Taliban, who then gave safe harbor to Al-Qaeda, which would eventually be behind the attacks of 9-11. As far as us having any past interviews on the topic... It came up dozens of times, both prior and immediately, following the U.S. invasions of both Afghanistan and Iraq. So, Martin, if I can find our interview with David Gibbs in our vast archives, uh, an artic- uh, who posted this interview uh, way back in 2020, if we can find the interview with David Gibbs, who shared this interview with Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, we'll we'll share it on Patreon, and when we do, I will make certain that you are aware that it will be shared. and we'll make sure that our audience knows why. You too can message us via Facebook or direct message us via Twitter or email us as uh, you know as Martin did. With your constructive and destructive criticism Your personal thoughts and and reflections As well as guest and topic ideas And if we have your suggested guest on the show We will thank you personally on air during that conversation Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers To this week's question from hell Following our conversation with um, Our conversation today with Cerise Castle On uh, deputy gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Again the question from hell is Considering all the crises we are experiencing today Uh, As we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Your eyewitness to grief. This Is Hell, it appears there is a very long history of gangs within law enforcement, not infiltrating law enforcement, making bad apples into rotten ones, but gangs began by members of law enforcement that act very much like the criminal gangs we expect law enforcement to protect us against. And not emulate. The gangs we will be discussing today are within the LA County Sheriff's Department and have a record of racism, as our guest today has discovered from her award winning investigation. Considering the recent racial or very racist revelations within the LA City Council, racism seems to be entrenched not only in the Sheriff's Department, but in political leadership in LA County and the city of Los Angeles as well. Here to explain award-winning reporter Cerise Castle is the author of the 15-part investigative series, A Tradition of Violence, the History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears at knock lacom A Tradition of Violence is now a podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Cerise.
2: Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much. Our listeners loved our conversation last year. As I was saying earlier, it was selected as one of their favorite interviews of 2021, and we replayed it at the end of the year while we were celebrating the holidays. So thank you again for being back on the show. Earlier this month, you posted on Twitter how you were honored to announce that you are also a winner of this year's American Journalism Online Award for your 15-part series on the L.A. Sheriff's Department gangs, the first and only history of deputy gangs. To you, what explains why your history was the first and so far only history of deputy gangs within the L.A. Uh, County Sheriff's Department? Why do you think this was a story that was ignored? And, uh, you know, uh, why do you think nobody was else was ever reporting on this?
2: Well, I know that this story was ignored because most legacy media institutions in the Los Angeles area and beyond were not invested in 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 this story because they saw it as a story that takes place place in neighborhoods where they do not have subscribers, where they do not have people paying for their content. And I know this because they told me as much when I pitched this story around to every major media outlet in the Los Angeles County area and a few beyond that um, based in New York. And that was the response that I got. You know, Knock LA, I'm really happy that they decided to publish this work because they saw it as valuable, as does the community, very much so. It's been read um, over 100,000 times in over 60 countries, and I think that the fact that Legacy Media did not see this story as valuable is just a product of... Institutional racism that, you know, journalists of color have been talking about long before I ever entered this field.
0: So generally, you know, mainstream establishment media is very, they default to a position of supporting the police. What's wrong with the media having a knee-jerk response of supporting the police in basically everything? Because, you know, a lot of times the the media will state that, well, we have to have a friendly relationship with the police so we can have accessibility to the police, so we can report about what the police are doing. So what what do you think about this default position that so many media outlets take of blindly supporting the police?
2: Well, I think it's hogwash. And I think that it directly conflicts with what the role of a journalist is supposed to be. You shouldn't be taking anyone's word at face value. Um, There is a great proverb that I love um, that goes, trust but verify. And that's how I was taught that we should be approaching everything that we cover, whether it be related to the police or anything else. And it's really disappointing frustrating to me that most legacy established outlets default to taking the police's word um as as bond and running with it i the los angeles county sheriff's department kills on average at least one person a month and every time this happens you see almost a direct copy of the department's press release run as an article on the Los Angeles Times, which I think is really just abysmal journalism and a mark that these establishment papers aren't able to perform simple job functions.
0: You found in your investigation that deputy gangs have killed at least 19 people, all of whom were men of color. At least four of them had a mental illness. Los Angeles County keeps a list of lawsuits related to the deputy gangs. Litigation related to these cases has cost the, court, the county just over $100 million over the past 30 years. If this has cost the county so much money, why is it not a bigger issue, or has this become a bigger issue since your reporting?
2: This issue has definitely become much more um, appealing, I would say, for people to discuss. It's much more, it's a political hot button issue here in Los Angeles. We're having several elections and speaking about this issue and giving light to this issue is a really good thing to do for someone who is campaigning for office. I think a combination of that and my reporting, you know, going viral really Helped encourage the people that have had the powers for the past fifty plus years to do something about this, to actually look at this issue and take it a little more seriously than they had been doing um, for prior generations.
0: Are well as sheriff's deputies are the are the law. How difficult is it to get others within law enforcement to hold the police accountable for their alleged crimes as L.A. County sheriff's de- uh, deputies? Are they proving to be above the law when it comes to their participation in deputy gangs and the crimes those gang members have committed?
2: 100%, yes. Um, It's very common to see the tactics of not only deputy gang members, but deputies engaged in misconduct, uh, being covered up and protected by the sheriff's department. It's really important to note that deputy gangs are just a symptom of a larger problem, which is systemic police violence that is able to be carried out unchecked um, without any sort of intervention from city government, state government, even the federal government um, because at this point we have seen what I believe rises to rises passes the sniff test of federal crimes when it comes to the sheriff's Department um yet there has been no serious intervention from you know the Federal Department of Justice or the State Department of Justice that we can actually see of course there are rumors that have been, swirling for the past, you know, four years that there are investigations going on. I know that there is an investigation at the State Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, but that's not criminal. That's just looking at, you know, patterns and practices and, you know, coming up with ways to improve. To my knowledge, you know, I am not familiar with anyone that is looking at this as something where people need to be charged criminally, criminally en masse.
0: So, you know, a lot of people see police unions around the United States as an obstacle to real legitimate police reform that actually is effective. Is there any link or relationship, or did you see anything involving police unions and deputy gangs? Do the police unions in some way either encourage or incentivize the growth of deputy gangs? Is there a link between the police unions and gangs?
2: I would say that police unions do a fabulous job of protecting deputy gangs yes uh, there was a policy written by the sheriff's department's civilian oversight commission who is tasked with uh you know observing how the sheriff's department operates itself and recommending improvements um to the department and their their structure and operations and a about a year ago they came up with a proposed policy for deputy gangs. And the Sheriff's Department's Union, the Association for Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs, otherwise known as ALADS, lobbied really aggressively against this policy. And this policy has not been adopted as of yet. Um, I think that's a pretty clear example of how a union can work to protect deputy gangs. But there are other ways, too. I mean, You know, unions are incredibly powerful political machines. They get behind various uh, propositions and laws that are proposed and passed in the county of Los Angeles, in the state of California that cater to police officers and continue to give police officers rights beyond that of everyday citizens. You know, they favor things that really make the rest of us um, second class citizens and give the police carte blanche to conduct themselves however they see fit.
0: So uh, just to make sure that people understand what the role is of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department within L.A. County. Here in Chicago, we have county sheriffs as well, according to the Cook County website. Under the uh, provisions of the Illinois State Constitution, the sheriff has three primary responsibilities, providing services and security to county and court facilities, administering the Cook County Jail, and protecting and serving the citizens of Cook County with policing throughout the county. We often see Cook County sheriffs on expressways, enforcing traffic laws. We also see them involved in evictions. What is the role of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department? When do Los Angelinos interact with the sheriff's department? What What's the role of that department in law enforcement?
2: I would say uh, it sounds incredibly similar to how sheriffs in Cook County are conducting themselves. Like you, we have our sheriffs uh, patrolling in unincorporated Los Angeles County. They are responsible for uh, services in our courts as well as administering our jails. And they also have several contracts throughout Los Angeles County in Uh, Contract cities, those are cities that opt to hire the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to provide policing services within their jurisdiction, as well as various um, county agencies and uh, buildings, facilities that, uh, like those contract cities, opt to have the Sheriff's Department provide policing services. I'm talking about our uh, Mass Transit Center mass transit system, L.A. Metro, uh, the L.A. Community College system, um, and places like that.
0: So you have reported that these gangs have killed at least 19 people, and lawsuits have led to, again, at least $100 million in awards. Have deputies been personally held accountable or been made to reimburse the county for the compensation the county has been forced to pay? To victims of deputy gangs, have there been any, has there been any, any disincentivization and uh, put in place to make certain that people would not want to be members of deputy gangs?
2: Not at this point. Um, it's really important to note that the vast majority of these settlements are being paid out of the Los Angeles County General Fund which is funded by taxpayers the sheriff's department is usually not responsible for a cent of this it's la county taxpayers residents visitors uh picking up the footing the bill for this stuff um there are in the past year i've seen a few settlements where the board of supervisors has directed the award to come from the sheriff's department's budget But that is a relatively new phenomenon. It's not something that was common, um, you know, if you're looking back in time historically. And again, I think that's a product of the reporting and people becoming more aware of this issue and more engaged in this issue.
0: Your investigation found, quote, under Section 186.22 of the California Penal Code, a criminal gang is described as any organization or group of three or more people that, one, has a common name or identifying sign or symbol, two, has as one of its primary activities the commission of one of a long list of California criminal offenses, and three, whose members have engaged in a pattern of criminal, criminal gang activity, either alone or together. Sheriffs, gangs, fit this description, you add how visible are sheriff's deputy gang members identifying signs or symbols how openly are deputies gang members
2: well in my experience it really depends you know i've seen some deputy gang members flying flags with their deputy gang insignia off the back of their trucks i've seen you know, some people that are wearing pins with the deputy gang logos um, on their duty uniforms while they're out on patrol. Um, Others, you know, keep it a secret, don't, you know, show off their tattoo. Um, It really depends. I think in law enforcement circles, you are more likely to see uh, displays of that kind, but when the time comes to Uh, sort of, you know, appear like a good responsible police officer that people can trust. That stuff is tucked away and conveniently forgotten.
0: Are these, there are citizens, especially black citizens aware of what these symbols uh, mean, what they're, what they're uh, uh, signifying to the person who's looking at them?
2: I would say so. The reason that I, started looking into deputy gangs is because I heard about them as a kid from older generations. And, you know, these older generations taught me how to recognize these deputy gang members, you know, based on sight, appearance, um, behavior, that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, institutional knowledge has been passed down in communities of color, for a really long time. And I think the fact that, you know, I was interested in this and came into it with some rudimentary knowledge is uh, proves that point. So I do think, yes, um, communities of color have for years and years been aware of how to recognize these deputy gang members.
0: So that would seem to be something that black citizens would be aware of, that they know that there are these deputy gangs. You were raised being told about these gangs. Within the white community, this is probably not knowledge that they have. Do you think that this might reflect the disparity that there is between black citizens and white citizens when it comes to understanding the endemic violence of the police department?
2: I think that it's very easy for white people to ignore this stuff because it doesn't, well, from what has been taught to us, it doesn't really happen to them. And I think when we're looking at sheriff's department's violence, I can speak to that pretty well. I've been studying it for the past two years. When you look at it statistically, yes, it is generally black people and Latina people that are, you know, facing this brutality but white people aren't immune you know i recently you know was looking into a case where an 18 year old white teenager was shot and killed in a predominantly white very affluent area of los angeles by a los angeles county sheriff's deputy and you know that's a story that we don't really hear about i don't think that's a story that the white community is really familiar with But again, it just goes to show no one is really immune just because, you know, you may not want to think about it because it may not comport with your understanding of reality and how things happen in this world. It doesn't mean that it isn't true, that it's not happening just because you don't want to see it.
0: Your final installment in your 15-part investigation that was at knockla.com, uh, it was is titled uh, "What We Don't Know." Despite the substantial amount of publicly available evidence regarding deputy gangs, some clicks remain in the shadows. In that piece, you write, "Deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department frequently beat and sometimes kill residents of the county because the District Attorney's Office." Regularly declines to criminally prosecute L.A. Sheriff's Department employees, the families of victims will pursue civil lawsuits. Why does the District Attorney's Office decline to criminally prosecute sheriff's deputies? Is it because it's just too difficult, it takes too many resources to not only make those charges, but make those charges stick, or is it something other than the legal difficulty of holding deputies accountable?
2: you know i have not had a chance to ask this question of our current district attorney george gascon and i didn't get the chance to ask our district attorney before him jackie lacy but my educated guess would be that the district attorney does not want to jeopardize their relationship with the department that is largely responsible for investigating and Helping to prosecute a large number of cases. And I think that is just, you know, further evidence of how the system was really constructed to fail and not really be a place um, that is really friendly to transparency and true accountability.
0: Is holding police or L.A. County Sheriff's Department uh, deputies, gang members responsible and accountable, is that for a district attorney in Los Angeles County, is that political suicide?
2: You know, I don't I think maybe at one point it could have been. Um, But I think at this point people are really hungry to see these police officers brought to brought to justice i mean we literally as i mentioned earlier we hear about at least one shooting death on average a month in LA county and beyond that dozens and dozens of cases of really awful brutality people being beaten within inches of death um and it's been going on for years you know this week i am covering a trial uh in the los angeles county superior court and listening to the jury pool you know they're asked is there anything that may have happened in your life to you know give you a perspective about police officers and more than half of these people of all ages and races raised their hands and shared an intimate detail um, experience after experience that has you know made them have a negative view of police Um, so I don't think this issue is isolated at all to one community anymore. I think this is something that a growing number of people are aware of. I would say the vast majority of people are aware of, um, post, uh, murder of George Floyd and people are ready to do something about it.
0: You write that oftentimes the evidence produced documenting gangs, members identifying tattoos and crimes are subject to protective orders, keeping them from the public record. Information about these gangs is difficult to find, but several have made appearances in the public sphere over the years. So I don't want to put you in the shoes of somebody who is supporting the police department, but what is the reasoning behind protecting this evidence? Why is law enforcement not transparent about the laws their members may have broken? After all, shouldn't anyone working in law enforcement who is convicted of a crime, especially a felony, no longer be a member of law enforcement if they are actively committing crimes while on the job representing law enforcement. So what is the reasoning behind this lack of transparency within the LA County Sheriff's Department?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's the million dollar question. Personally, I I believe that there, this department is not interested in transparency. I do not think this department is interested in accountability either. I think a lot of that has to do with, well, I would say that the union's influence in that is also substantial. Um, And I, I think this is how, you know, things have been able to carry on for years and years and years. And they are expecting that this is the way that they will be able to continue on.
0: You mentioned how you were told about these gangs when you were a kid. You write, other deputies from the Firestone Station of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department have suggested that a gang called the Pirates were an intramural sports team. When the station closed in the early 1990s, members were likely transferred out, of, uh, out to other department locations, bringing the culture of the gang with them. It's unclear if membership is still actively recruiting new members. So can we go back to how, where, and when these gangs began? Were the Pirates, for example the first and they spread it everywhere. Was there an original gang that all the deputy gangs can be traced to?
2: Uh, From what I have been able to uncover in my research, the first known deputy gang was a gang called the Little Red Devils. And they, excuse me, they date all the way back to the mid 1960s. Um, And that is the earliest gang that I have been able to uncover.
0: So what was the specific reason that the Red Devils that you know possibly original gang if if there even was one was created? What were the original gangs? What were the little Red Devils? What were they responding to? Are they still responding? Are gangs still responding to the same thing that they were responding to back in the 1960s?
2: Well, the little Red Devils they from from people that I have been able to speak with that were familiar with membership or were even asked to become members themselves told me that these were deputies that were quote unquote hard chargers. Also at the time, the East Los Angeles station adopted what is known as the Fort Apache logo, which celebrates uh, police violence that was inflicted on the East Los Angeles, mostly Latina community at a anti-Vietnam War March. And that is a logo that you can still see in the streets of East L.A. today on the uniforms, um, hats and other accessories that deputies wear. And the name Ford Apache that comes from a John Ford Western where it tells the story of uh, army officers at this outpost in the West, and they are surrounded by what they call savages, and they these officers see their role as keeping order and sort of getting at what appears to be a very very early idea of the thin blue line, um, and that logo was embraced um, by that station. It continues to be embraced by that station. The little red devils. Um, went on to spawn two subsequent generations, the deputy gangs, one of which I know um, was still actively recruiting members as recently as last year. It's rumored that a third generation um, has been created at the station. Um, Yeah, very much still ongoing.
0: So if this was in response to the Vietnam War, how much are these deputy gangs, how much are they enforcing not the law, how much are they enforcing not an agenda of protecting and serving, but a political agenda? Are these gangs behind supporting some sort of political agenda?
2: I would say it was more a response of white supremacy rather than a response directly to the Vietnam War. Um, From what I have been able to discern from people I spoke with that were at the Chicano moratorium that day, um, and people that were familiar with the LASD at this time, um, those deputies really saw their role as you know, white men to quote unquote, bring order and discipline into this majority Brown community. And I think that those notions are inherently tied to how policing is carried out in this country. Um, I think policing is largely tied to white supremacy and preserving capital and property, uh, not protecting and serving the lives of citizens. And I think that sentiment is very much alive today. Um, has been, you know, propped up by various laws that have been passed, case law that has been established, and. I very much see that as how police departments conduct themselves.
0: So how much is the black community aware when they see uh, law enforcement agents that they are representing white supremacy? Is that the big, you know, the one thing that maybe white people don't recognize that the police department is enforcing white supremacy and the black community is fully aware of that?
2: I would say, yeah, the black community, um, the Latina community, I I would say a lot of communities of color that, and not just communities of color, but poor communities, um, have have been aware of this, yes, for a very long time. And I think that, you know, as the white community is more, you know, open to engaging with the notion of white supremacy being entrenched in so many systems in this country, um, it. I hope and it appears to me and just based on what I am seeing in the field in my reporting that, you know, people are more white people are more willing to acknowledge that and reckon with that.
0: We are speaking with award winning reporter Cerise Castle, author of the 15 part investigative series, A Tradition of Violence The History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which is now a podcast with the name A Tradition of Violence. You can find that podcast wherever you do get your podcasts. You write. As historically black and Latinx communities are gentrified and redeveloped in the eastern and southern parts of Los Angeles County, the families that once called them home are increasingly moving to the Antelope Valley, which is located in uh, northern Los Angeles County in the western part of the Mojave Desert. You quote John Sweeney, a civil rights attorney who uncovered the executioners deputy gang saying the cancer has metastasized out to other towns within that area, Palmdale and Lancaster, wherever you are going to find black people, you're going to find sheriff deputies who are heavy handed and who violate the civil rights of citizens. Sweeney doesn't say people of color generally. He doesn't say marginalized people. He doesn't say poor people. He says black people. But a lot of people would suggest that, well, this isn't an action of white supremacy because there are non-white deputy gangs as well. Do you also find non-white deputy gangs, uh, as Sweeney puts it, wherever you find black people? Is it limited to white gangs or can non-white gangs be also enforcing white supremacy?
2: Yes, non-white gangs can 100 percent be enforcing white supremacy. And You know, it doesn't have to be just black people being victimized for it to be, you know, an act of white supremacy. There are literally hundreds of um, Latina people that have been killed. There are dozens of Asian people that have been killed. There are white people that have been killed by these gangs. And I would say, yes, all of these all of these gangs and all of those acts were whether they were committed by white or non-white deputies were, you know, part of white supremacy and part of cap capitalism.
0: Law enforcement always claims that the problem is just a few bad apples within their ranks. Do deputy gangs organize these already bad apples or do they create these bad apples?
1: I think
2: that Honestly, the whole tree is rotten. Whenever I hear the bad apple, I, I think it's a rotten tree, and it's it's I it's more apt to say get a couple of good apples every now and then um, rather than just a couple of bad. I, I think the system is corrupt. I think that we literally have generations of history to base that on. I think that the system both attracts and creates these people i think it's both nature and nurture um if you want to get psychological with it and i think it needs to be overhauled in in order for all of this to stop
0: you write that members of the sheriff's department appear to hold racist beliefs about people of color in the antelope valley According to the Department of Justice report, an investigation the DOJ did, the sheriff's department dedicated extensive resources to policing participants in the Section 8 housing choice voucher program between 2004 and 2011. In 2004, a Lancaster sheriff's station captain said to members of the press, a lot of the time voucher holders are trying to do a good thing. Their nephew from South Central is getting in trouble, so they send him up here. He rewards them by continuing his gang activity. So is this not only racializing crime, but criminalizing poverty and desegregation within the black community?
2: Yes, I would 100 percent say so. That statement is atrocious. It is steeped in racism. It is steeped in stereotypes. And yeah, reading that report, I think really just lays out how disgusting these policies and the people carrying them out can be
0: i know this is kind of an overarching question but what's wrong with criminalizing section 8 or receiving any kind of social service assistance? what assistance what happens when the police when law enforcement criminalizes the very aid that people who are the most vulnerable need
2: well i mean people that are making use of these vouchers are you know very much so living for the most part in you know really awful extreme circumstances of poverty and they they really have i mean the most to lose i would say in a situation like this um losing a voucher is you know losing a home and you have nowhere else to go beyond that point that can literally make the difference between life and death. And jeopardizing someone's housing voucher is a really, really easy way to completely destroy someone's life. And that aggressive um, policing criminalization of the people in Antelope Valley had some really devastating consequences. Um, And yeah. I, I, it, effectively, I mean, I, I would in summary just say that, you know, criminalizing people that are making use of these systems is a really effective way to make sure that they can never use these systems again.
0: In 20, you write that in 2010, an LA Sheriff's Department deputy took photographs of luxury vehicles parked in a home's garage and sent them to the administrator of a group called I hate Section 8 on Facebook. The family's home was later vandalized with the words, I hate Section 8, you effing N-word, scrawled on their garage door. The family's son had urine thrown on him while his attacker yelled, Dirty Section 8, N-word. The family relocated back to the city of Los Angeles out of fear. By your estimation, was that the intent of the sheriff's department? Are sheriff's deputies in Antelope uh, Valley actively working against racial desegregation.
2: I would say so. I mean, I am aware of at least one sheriff's gang uh, that was established in the Antelope Valley that was literally based on KKK principles. Um, it's There is a large contingent of Klan members out in the Antelope Valley. I don't know how many of them are sheriff's deputies, but that is a sentiment that is widely shared in the Antelope Valley. This is a part of Los Angeles County that has been open about their racism for Again, generations. Um, So, it's sad to say that hearing that does not shock me. When I read about it initially, I was not surprised. Uh, Well, I'll rephrase that. I was not surprised to hear that. It was definitely shocking, of course, to hear about such a horrible, horrible, disgusting behavior. But it's, it's not surprising because that is a sentiment that has been allowed to grow and fester in the antelope valley and you know a good number of deputies working in the antelope valley live in the antelope valley have grown up in the antelope valley and that is that is very much uh the culture of the antelope valley and has been for a long time
0: do you believe deputy gangs are inciting violence not only within their gang members but throughout law enforcement departments and even law enforcement Writ large, are gangs the engine of police violence or is that going too far?
2: I don't think they are the only reason that police violence happens. No, I think they are um, a symptom of just police culture being inherently violent and built on, you know, principles that celebrate, you know, violence and that sort of thing. But I know and there are many cases that you can point to where you can say, yes, deputy gangs were the causation behind this violent act. Yes.
0: You also have been posting on social media about the current scandal in the L.A. City Council. As PBS NewsHour reported, a recording captured Los Angeles city leaders making derogatory and racist remarks as they conspired to consolidate their power. The comments by City Council President Nuri Martinez and others have led to widespread calls for those on the recording to resign, and many have. As your colleague at Knock LA, John Peltz writes, earlier this month, an anonymous Reddit account posted several shocking audio recordings. The recordings seem to contain the voices of Council President Nuri Martinez, Council Members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo, and LA Labor Federation President Ron Herrera, discussing a wide range of topics of great public interest and being incredibly racist while doing so. In the recording, Council President Nuri Martinez says of Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon, F that guy, he's with the blacks. When you consider this kind of language not only as racist and aimed at black people, but also targeting the district attorneys who defend black people in court, when you consider all that in light of what you have learned about gangs and law enforcement, what does this city council scandal reveal to you about political leadership and its role in racialized police violence in los angeles
1: i don't think
2: the la fed lake tapes revealed anything new to people that have been paying attention we have seen racist policy after racist policy uh conceptualized um proposed and executed by these members. We watched the racist redistricting happen in real time, and Knock LA was reporting on it while all of this was happening. Um, but, you know, like police violence, this isn't something for whatever reason that established media finds uh, worth covering um, for reasons I cannot ascertain. Um, but when someone is caught on tape, saying such horrible things i guess there really is nowhere else to look um although i will note that um the los angeles times who initially reported the story before we were able to post ours only reported on a fraction of the things that were said on that tape they neglected to report on the comment about george gascon being uh quote, with the blacks um, and a number of other really awful things. Uh, Nuri Martinez, Gil Cidio, Kevin De Leon and Ron Herrera went after black people, Armenian people, Korean people, Oaxacan people, gay people, various community organizations, several individuals by name and legacy media did not feel that that was worth reporting. Um, And all of it really just encapsulates to me all of the problems that we've been talking about um for the past several minutes um i don't think it, again i don't think it revealed anything new i think again like the sheer of deputy gang series it was this was just presented in such a way that wasn't it was impossible for people to ignore um as hard as the los angeles times tried to censor and neuter the story uh people could not
0: you also shared on social media how you had just listened to the full hour plus of council members Martinez, De León, and Cedillo uttering slur after slur all whilst laying out a plan for redistricting the city of Los Angeles in their favor. Are city council members making racist slur after racist slur while redistricting not only in a way that benefits them, but is racist? Is this structural racism for all to see?
2: 100% yes i'm a i am do not think a hollywood writer could have written this story i think if i had told this story to a hollywood writer they would say that's a little too cliche they recorded themselves doing the slurs that's that's too much but sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction
0: so let's get to your podcast uh, just for a moment here traditional violence is now not only a series of articles at knock la but it's also a podcast you write how you spent six Months on this project, aside from this being an audio version while the articles are the printed word, how do how does the podcast differ from the writing that you did for knock la?
2: The podcast is going to be taking what I wrote initially in the series and pushing it forward. It's going to include the work that I've been doing for the past uh, year and a half on this project since publishing the series, um, taking the stories of additional victims that I've met. Um, I've met with some additional um, former and current uh, employees of the Sheriff's Department with um, intimate knowledge of these gangs. I've uncovered some additional deputy gangs um, since reporting the series. Um, And it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting lesson. Lots of really important stories that I think are relevant not only to people living in Los Angeles, but across the United States, because police departments all over the United States come here to L.A. to train with the sheriff's departments, and they are learning these tactics and bringing it home to you. Um, so I encourage everyone to please listen to a tradition of violence, uh, episodes one and two are out tomorrow. So go ahead and
0: please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Listeners can get tradition of violence, as you were saying, wherever they get their podcasts, but including iHeartRadio, were you surprised at how much interest there was in a podcast about the LA County Sheriff's Department deputy gangs?
2: Um, you know, honestly, no, uh, i feel like i am beating back uh various producers um that want to get in on this story um that's the thing about a story like this it's so funny how no one thought it was worthwhile when i was trying to get it published initially and now that i have people can't get enough i just think that's so ironic in a really strange and disappointing way um. Yeah,
0: and it's not just the institutional racism that you find in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. And with the breaking news about what happened within the City Council, we see that there's racism there as well. And as you point out, Mayor Garcetti was actually back in January. He was involved in a scandal involving some statements made by uh, his chief of staff when it comes to racism. So, were you surprised? To learn through your own investigations and reporting, and, and, you're, and you're writing on the L.A. Uh, United School District and some of the scandals that are happening there and the violence that uh, people who are black students face on a daily basis. It, it, were you surprised to learn how rife Los Angeles is with racism, especially at the highest levels of power in Los Angeles?
2: No, I've lived in Los Angeles as a black woman my entire life. Um, I've been keenly aware of racism in Los Angeles um, since I can remember. Um, I'm glad that more people are talking about it. I'm glad that more people are engaging with this topic. I think that that is the first step to uh, completely exterminating it.
0: One last question for you, Cerise. We have been speaking with award-winning reporter Cerise Castle, author of the 15-part investigative series, A Traditional Violence, which is now a podcast and premieres tomorrow. Episodes 1 and 2 are going to be going online on Wednesday, October 19th, so make sure you check that out. One last question for you, Cerise, and as we always do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response, but I'm just not too sure how hellish this question is. Is the solution, is the only solution to ending deputy gangs in the LAS, uh, uh, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, ending the Sheriff's Department, can gangs be rooted out without a complete overhaul of the department from top to bottom. And in, in, in any case, whether it's the L.A. County Sheriff's Department or wherever these kinds of gangs are found, is there any solution, any reform other than completely ending the Sheriff's Department in this example, completely overhauling it and making it into a totally different department?
2: I think that is the only solution. Yes, I think it it needs to be completely taken taken down. And there are a lot of people um, in advisory commission or advisory positions, leadership positions, and within department rank and file that
0: agree with that assessment. So why is it beyond reform?
2: Well, I think when you have a 50-year documented history of deputy gangs effectively running the department uh you need to get rid of something like that
0: it's as you were saying earlier it's the culture of policing that needs to be addressed cerise thank you so much for being back on our show you know that we'll annoy you in the future to have you back on it's always a pleasure having you on thank you so much for being on and the best of luck to you on your new podcast a Tradition of Violence, which is now uh, you can find wherever you get your podcast. So thank you very much, Cerise, for being back on the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much. No, no annoyance at all. I really appreciate you having me back. Thank you.
0: All right, take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell if what you just heard from Cerise Castle about gangs within law enforcement created by law enforcement and the racism that goes from cops on the streets to the highest level of both city and county power in Los Angeles, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that, yes, there's no question this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week, and his podcast shortly after it. patreon.com slash how or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on Support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from hell is... Considering all of the crises we're experiencing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? So the last response was Trump, of course. Trump costume. Yeah. Um, We're getting a
0: lot of those. Somebody on Facebook said DJT mask, and I thought it was some drug I hadn't tried yet. And I was like, what's a DJT mask? Is it like a different version of DMT? Then I found out. Donald J Trump D
1: J T yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, it took me a minute too. I thought uh, <laughs> Adam August Adam A says uh, the love child of Stephen A Smith and Dana White.
0: <sighs> okay.
1: I don't know those people. I know Dana. I know
0: Stephen A Smith. Don't know who Dana White is. Though that sounds very familiar.
1: Martin F says wearing a Donald Rumsfeld costume while terking- twerking furiously.
0: Okay, that's disturbing
1: Indeed, Michael K says Can't be the president, question mark All right Uh, Amanda K says Milton Friedman (laughs) Uh, That
0: would be the corpse of Milton Friedman Which would be a very scary (laughs) costume That would be
1: scary As we approach Halloween what trick-or-treater costume And frighten you the most Our last response on Facebook from Justin M says Antifa That's a good one <laughs>
0: That is pretty funny <laughs> The general of Antifa army That would be a good one
1: Yeah, there are quite a few on Twitter So I'll read like maybe a few okay. here From uh, at Kenny G uh, That's not Kenny G But Kenny Gilliland uh,
0: <laughs> okay. Damn it, I was hoping it was Kenny G <laughs> uh,
1: It says The Trump manatee Alright uh, um, Ahmed S. says Genetically modified climate change resistant polar bear dressed as an Amazon delivery worker holding a box with Jeffrey Epstein's remains written on it.
0: Wow. Wow, that's a lot of detail.
1: <laughs> I like it. It's creative. Okay. <laughs> Justin M says, MAGA communist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good one. <laughs> dressed in a total Mao outfit, but having a MAGA hat on would be pretty yeah. spectacular.
1: Okay. Now I see djt on here am i reading am i rereading no no Twitter? i just saw
0: that one today and i was oh, totally okay. confused by seeing djt mask i was like i just gotta know is this yeah. some sort of drug uh, you know no. distribution thing no
1: <laughs> New, yeah uh, they just discovered djt <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh th- that's from at third cloud and then i'll just this last one here okay. uh from todd h henry kissinger
0: <laughs> it's very disturbing Uh, So we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week's show You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page You can tweet it at us, you can email it to us But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show When we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Torchin in the moment of truth During this week's moment, Jeff unveils the super truth about angels speaking through deli meats Think about that for a moment We will have the rest of your answers As I said to this week's question mail Later this week It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous Naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky Goopy, gloppy, globby, gory This week in Rotten History On October 20th, 1952 70 years ago this week The British governor of Kenya Sir Evelyn Baring Declared a state of emergency in that colony In response to an uprising Led by rebel troops Of the Kenya Land and Freedom Army An independence movement that became known in the international press as the Mau Mau Rebellion. The origin of that name, Mau Mau, is uncertain. However, for some reason, I'm gonna guess it's racist But maybe that's just me Characterized by the British as a cult of irrational savagery Well, that does sound like the British Empire Influenced by Soviet communism The so-called Mao Mao revolt Was actually a well-organized effort To expel the British from Kenya After decades of occupation, land seizure Oppressive labor exploitation And violent atrocities But hey, if you can crush a rebellion against oppressive rule By stoking a cold war between nuclear powers Why not? But the movement was also beset by internal divisions of which the British sought to take advantage as divide and conquer seems to be the only play in the British Empire's playbook of cruel colonial imperialism. The British governor's emergency declaration was quickly followed by mass arrests of hundreds of alleged Mao Mao leaders, including Jomo Kenyatta, the future president of independent Kenya. Over the next several years, the British, with help from local collaborators, resorted to mass killings. Torture and other war crimes as well as aerial bombing in an attempt to force independence fighters out of the Kenyan force and compel their surrender As the violence escalated, the rebels responded with atrocities of their own Of course, the British effort was futile And by the time Kenya achieved independence in 1963, the conflict had claimed the lives of some 20,000 anti-colonial fighters Along with another 5,000 Kenyan collaborators Futile, yes, but very deadly whilst provoking tensions between nuclear powers. No wonder so many in the U.S. government cannot wait to start up a new Cold War, this time with both Russia and China. Others suffer around the world while military spending increases, all while risking worldwide worldwide nuclear annihilation. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Also in Rotten History on October 22nd, 1986, 30 years ago this week, Jane Doorknocker was back on the job as a traffic reporter for New York radio station WNBC after having survived a helicopter crash six months earlier. Dornocker, formerly an actress and singer, had played small parts in movies and had also toured with the San Francisco-based band The Tubes in the late 70s, with whom she co-wrote their single, Don't touch me there. And just a note from your friends here at This Is Hell, the tubes sucked, so don't waste your time looking them up online. How bad were they? As a music director at a college radio station, I got free passes to see them and walked out when between songs, they would play commercials for their new album on a huge screen. Yes, a concert constantly interrupted by commercials. That's how much the tubes sucked. After then working a few years as a traffic reporter for radio station KFRC in San Francisco, Doorknocker had been at New York's WNBC for just five months before the April 1986 accident in which her helicopter had gone down in the Hackensack River and both she and her pilot had swum to safety. Shaken by that experience, Doorknocker had remained on the ground for two months. But now, She was finally over it and back in the air, reporting on traffic during New York's afternoon rush hour. And prepare yourself, because after all, this is rotten history. Just as she was describing the traffic flow toward the Lincoln Tunnel in New Jersey, radio listeners suddenly heard the high-pitched sound of a motor racing in the background and door knocker shouting, hit the water, hit the water. There was a frightening moment of dead air. Probably not the right word to use at this point. And the confused DJ in the New York studio, not knowing what to do, went to a song by Huey Lewis, Hip to be Square. That sounds like a confused DJ, all right. Why the hell else would you play that crappy song? Which is unbelievably even worse than anything that horrible Tubes ever did. The traffic helicopter had gone down in the Hudson River. The pilot survived, but Doorknocker was killed. It would emerge that during maintenance on the helicopter's drivetrain, a contractor had installed a replacement part designed for military craft, but not civilian helicopters, and had also failed to lubricate it properly. This made the motor's connection to the big rotor blades come apart while the helicopter was in midair. The New York Times reported that before the crash, the contractor had been cited by the Federal Aviation Administration for repeated safety violations, including Falsified inspection reports Yet despite all those reports The worker was still allowed to repair a helicopter Doing such a horrible job That Doorknocker was killed Radio station WNBC had also rejected a request from its traffic reporters To switch to a more expensive model of helicopter That had a better safety record So The government's oversight completely failed And then the station made a bottom line decision To not heed the warning from their traffic reporters Risking their lives and eventually killing one of them. It's the kind of public-private partnership of profit-fueled corporations and the government oversight that kills and keeps on killing. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell.
1: Tomorrow's guest is filmmaker Joe Winston. He will be on to discuss his new movie, Punch Punch Nine for Harold Washington. The story of Harold Washington, elected in 1983 as Chicago's first African-American mayor. The political battles he fought and his legacy to Chicago and the nation.
0: I'm really interested in this. I'm really looking forward to it. But I just love how the title implies that you're supposed to go out and punch nine people for Harold Washington. I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do, though. Of course, we will, as I was saying, have a moment of truth uh, from Jeff Dorchin. Our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party happens on the first day of winter, Wednesday, December 21st, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Now, you may be wondering, as I am, why are you telling us this, Chuck, about a holiday office party when the holidays are still two months away? And to that, I would say, that's a very damn good question. But apparently, people are already making their plans for the holidays. In fact, this week this weekend I am celebrating get this Christmas why two months prior to the holidays am I already celebrating Christmas well I have family members who refuse to get vaccinated against COVID-19. This means since 2020, we've been having Christmas, Christmas with them in October when it's still warm enough to be outside. Kinda. They bring out a space heater and offer everyone blankets just in case we get cold sitting outside for several hours, sitting still in temperatures that have generally been in the 50s which is not cold but once you are sitting outside essentially motionless for several hours at a time you definitely start feeling the chill in the air this is also the time of year that other branches of my family start organizing our holiday gift exchange and everyone is trying to fit their work schedules around the holidays so with all of that in mind if you are unfortunately like me already making holiday plans join us for our annual this is hell holiday office party wednesday evening december 21st at carrie's lounge so what is our holiday office party basically it's our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think this is hell office hours except we will have gifts for everyone who attends you will also be able to pick up this is hell merchandise if you are looking for a last minute last minute gift but more than any of that Do you work but no longer go to the office or have an office but work completely remotely? Then invite the people from your virtual workplace and have your party, our party, be your holiday office party. Don't really like the people going to your actual office party that you are forced to attend? Then bring the people who you do like to party with, who you also work with, to our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. That's Wednesday evening December 21st, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And I also look forward to seeing all of you uh, this Wednesday at This Is Hell Office Hours. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. Always a pleasure doing a show with you. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like
1: a Uh sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.
2: Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.